0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: Hello and welcome to Red Ron Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries surrounding it. Some are solved, but some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. So as you know, traveling is never very easy. It can become very stressful, full of long hours, and sometimes getting very expensive. Ever since 9-11, flying has become a lot more complicated. So many people opt to travel by bus. My boyfriend's mom just visited us from Mexico, and she came pretty much the whole way by bus. It's very affordable, and you don't have to drive it yourself. But the whole time she was on the bus, my mind drifted back to the story I'm going to tell this week. In 2008, a man brought a Greyhound bus traveling to Winnipeg to an absolute standstill. He pulled out a knife and stabbed a fellow passenger. He proceeded to go into overkill, beheading the man and eating parts of his body. This week, I'll discuss the Greyhound bus murder of Tim McLean. Tim McLean was a Canadian, having spent three summers working at Vancouver's Pacific National Exhibition as a carnival worker. He was a very active guy and he loved traveling. So when he needed to get home to Winnipeg, he didn't mind having to take a Greyhound to get there. He just sent a text to his dad asking if he could spend the night at his house. And sadly, this would be the last communication between father and son. On July 30th, 2008, at 12 p.m., McLean boarded Greyhound bus 1170 to Winnipeg via the Yellowhead Highway. He sat at the very back of the bus, one row ahead of the toilet. At 6.55 p.m., the bus picked up passengers in Erickson, Manitoba. Fellow passenger Marlene Gregory remembers boarding with a very strange, agitated man who was pacing and talking to himself in a foreign language. That man was Vince Lee. He was a tall man in his 40s, with a shaved head and wearing sunglasses. When he first boarded, he sat at the very front of the bus. The bus pulled over for a break between Brandon and Portage La Prairie. At this time, McLean got off to smoke a cigarette. When he got back to his seat, he noticed the tall man from the front of the bus had moved to sit beside him. He didn't pay much attention, and he barely acknowledged Lee before falling asleep against a windowsill nestled in his headphones. Stephen Allison, who was 18, remembers this very well. He'd just gotten a scholarship to study criminal justice at the University of Winnipeg, and he was sitting at the very back of the bus with his wife, Isabella. Suddenly, he saw Vince Lee pull out a huge knife and sink it directly into sleeping McLean's neck. Tim McLean instantly woke up and let out a blood-curdling scream. Stephen Allison yelled for the bus driver to stop, and he ran to the front of the bus. All of the passengers started tearing down the middle aisle, all of them but his wife, who, frozen in a panic, was still at the back with Lee and McLean. Allison sprung into action, jumping over seats to pull his wife to safety. But unfortunately, to his regret, he couldn't help Tim McLean. Vince Lee kept stabbing him in the neck and chest. He put up his hands to defend himself, but he was no match for this surprise attack. Tim fell to the floor of the bus, trapped from escaping by the seats. By this time, driver Bruce Martin had pulled the Greyhound over and had shouted at Lee, demanding he stop the attack. He and two other passengers tried to intervene, only to be slashed at with a knife. They quickly exited the bus to try to ensure their own safety. Lee was following them and he tried to exit. So thinking quick on his feet, Bruce Martin closed the door on his arm, with the bloody knife extended outside. Lee was able to pull his arm back in and returned to attacking Tim McLean. A second bus was driving behind Greyhound bus 1170 to carry the extra passengers. Driver Bernie Skirrup was a veteran driver, having been working for over 35 years. So he'd seen a lot happen in his time, and he sensed something was wrong, so he pulled over in front of the bus on the shoulder. He then attempted to board the bus and try to help but when he entered, it was plain that he couldn't help. Blood was everywhere, and Lee had hacked at Tim McLean until he beheaded him, lifting up the head to show the horrified passengers outside the bus. Lee then mumbled something to him that sounded like, Get emergency. Skirrup made a hasty exit, working quick to disable the bus's engine to prevent Lee from driving it away. By this time, another person had pulled over to help, It was truck driver Chris Alguire, and he was hauling a load of steel pipe when he saw the buses and pulled over to the site. A passenger yelled that someone was being stabbed, so he grabbed a steel snipe, which was used for cinching down loads. He then stood outside the bus doors. He's quoted as saying, I was ready to break every bone in his body. After about 30 minutes, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrived. At one point, Lee motioned that he wanted to get off the bus, knife in one hand, Tim McLean's head in the other. The other passengers were huddled at the side of the road. Some were crying, some were vomiting. The police pulled a car in front of the bus doors to prevent escape, relieving driver Chris Alguire of his guard duty. Witness Garnet Catton told them how Lee seemed so calm when he began the attack. There was no rage or anything. He was like a robot, stabbing the guy. An officer asked Lee to drop the knife and surrender. He responded by saying, I have to stay on the bus forever. And everyone watched in horror as he continued to mutilate the severed head of the body with a buck knife and scissors. Passengers reported seeing him smell parts of lean and then eat them. He appeared to lick blood from his fingers and hands. And at times, they would see him carrying various organs and body parts around the bus before stuffing them into the garbage bags. And he continued to display the head to all who could see. It was like something out of a horror movie. The police were now on a standoff with Vince Lee. And as the hours passed, they brought in special negotiators and an armed tactical unit. Lee paced the length of the bus, continuing to defile the body. The remaining passengers were transported away from the scene to Brandon in order to be interviewed and have their statements taken. On July 31st, around 1.20 a.m., Lee broke open a window. He threw out some belongings, the knife and the scissors, before jumping out headfirst and landing on the knife. Refusing to surrender, he was tasered by police twice, all the while screaming. The ordeal was finally over. Lee was taken to the hospital to treat a gash on his right hand and a cut behind his ear. But before he left, they searched his pockets and found a very gruesome discovery. Tim McLean's ear, nose, and tongue. What they found on the bus was just as horrendous. Blood and body parts were everywhere. Internal organs were found in four separate areas of the bus in plastic bags. McLean's body had been stabbed in over 100 areas. The tip of the knife blade was still lodged in his skull, right above his right eyebrow. But, oddly, all of him was not there. Only a quarter of his heart was recovered, and they never found his eyes. It was assumed that Lee had eaten them. A Greyhound representative took some of the passengers to a local store to replace their clothing that was still on the bus. And then another bus finally dropped the traumatized passengers at their destination in Winnipeg around 3.30 p.m. So what was Vince Lee's story? I mean, who was this guy and why did he commit this atrocious crime? So let's go into a little bit of his background. Li was born in China on April 30th in 1968. In 1992, he graduated from the University of Wuhan Institute of Technology with a bachelor's degree of science in computers. He spent the years 1994 to 1998 working in Beijing as a computer software engineer. He then emigrated to Canada on June 11th, 2001, becoming a citizen on November 7th, 2006. In 2003, he was hospitalized after an incident with Ontario police. I couldn't find out any information about what actually occurred, but it was around this time that Lee admits to hearing voices. In fact, one voice said it was the voice of God. He continued to work menial jobs in Winnipeg, unable to find work in his field. And for six months, he worked at Grant Memorial Hospital to support his wife, Anna. Overall, he got along with the parishioners, the only problem being a language barrier. In the spring of 2005, he was forced to work as a forklift operator while his wife worked as a waitress. You have to imagine this had to be stressful. He would left a successful life in China, only to come to a new life in Canada and struggle. In 2006, he moved to Edmonton, some say divorcing his wife. And then some reports later say that she joined him. And then he continued to work a variety of jobs, from McDonald's as an assistant manager to a newspaper delivery man. He was fired at a job at Walmart after a, quote, disagreement with other employees. The manager there remembers him asking for time off to go to an interview in Winnipeg. On July 29, 2008, he boarded a Greyhound bus bound for Winnipeg. He didn't tell his ex-wife that he was leaving, only leaving a note that read, I'm gone. Don't look for me. I wish you were happy. At 6 p.m., he inexplicably got off the bus in Erickson, Manitoba. The driver advised him that it wasn't his stop, but Lee ignored him. There was insufficient time to reissue his ticket, so he spent the night on a bench at the stop. One witness recalls seeing him sitting there at 3 a.m., bolt upright, eyes wide open. While he was on the bench, he tried to sell most of his belongings. At first, he tried to sell his new laptop for $600, eventually lowering the price down to 60 and he sold it to 15-year-old Darren Beatty. The only silver lining to this story is, after the murder, when the computer had to be confiscated for evidence, An anonymous businessman felt bad for the kid and bought him one to replace it. After that, he made the fateful entry onto Greyhound bus 1170. He later admitted to hearing the voices again. This time, they told him he was to write his journey, and it would be like a book of the Bible. He was something akin to the second coming of Jesus, and he was here to save humanity from an alien space attack. This is why he was traveling on the Greyhound. And when he sat down beside Tim McLean, the voice told him to kill the man. He needed to protect humanity. So he pulled out the knife he had purchased at Canadian Tire and sunk it deep into Tim McLean's neck. Lee's trial began in March of 2009. He pled not criminally responsible, meaning he accepted that the offense occurred but claimed he was unable to form the necessary mental element, or mens rea. Mens rea literally means guilty mind in Latin. It's the knowledge that one's action or lack of action would cause a crime to be committed. In his mind, McLean was a force of evil, and he had to execute him. He was heard to say upon entering the courtroom one day, Please kill me. Judge John Scurfield accepted the diagnosis of Lee. He was found to be schizophrenic. Lee was ruled not criminally responsible and then sent to Selkirk Mental Health Center. A week after the attack, Greyhound pulled ads with the slogan, There's a reason you've never heard of bus rage. Petitions and calls were made to the company to provide more security. PETA,
1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: Graphic. Comparing Tim McLean's death and Lee's cannibalism to the consumption of animals. Thankfully, the paper's publisher refused to run the ad. Tim McLean's family sued Greyhound, Lee, and the Attorney General of Canada for $150,000. On June 3, 2010, Vince Lee was granted supervised outdoor walks. In 2011, passengers Deborah Tucker and Kaylee Shaw filed a lawsuit against Lee, Greyhound, and the RCMP and the Governor of Canada for being exposed to the beheading. They sought $3 million in damages, but the suit was dropped on July 14, 2015. On May 30, 2011, Lee was responding well to treatment, so doctors recommended more freedoms. A year later, he was granted temporary passes out of Selkirk Mental Health Center to town with a nurse and a police officer. On February 27, 2014, he was granted unsupervised visits to Selkirk, first for 30 minutes, then full day trips. In July that year, the Toronto Sun reported the sad news that one of the first officers on the scene of that fateful day, Corporal Ken Barker of the RCMP, had committed suicide. The events of that day still weighed heavy with very many. Marlene Gregory, who boarded that day with Lee, said, I'm back there every day. It just doesn't go away. I used to be the type to walk around and feel safe. I trusted people. And that's gone. I'm trying to get it back, but it's pretty rough. She admits to being afraid of knives and greyhounds specifically. She can't stand the sight of either. The company had offered her reimbursement for her blood-splattered jacket, but she refused it. It would just be another horrible reminder of that day. Stephen Allison, the man who was traveling for his scholarship at the University of Winnipeg, nearly flunked out of school after that day. He had a hard time meeting new people. He's suspicious they will do something. Greyhound assured him that they would provide compensation and trauma counseling. But eventually, the email and phone numbers they'd given him for the company representatives had stopped working. The couple was paid $437 for the loss of their blood-stained belongings. When asked about the situation, the company said it was treating each passenger on a case-by-case basis. When they failed to do that, some of them got help on their own. Driver Bernie Skirp, the driver of the second bus who disabled the engine, said his wife made him get professional help. He tried going back to work, but he kept suffering panic attacks. And the hero truck driver who stood outside doors with the steel pipe, Chris Alguire, struggled with drinking and getting into trouble after the incident. In 2015, Lee was granted unsupervised day passes to Winnipeg on the condition that he carried a working cell phone. And later, he was granted passes to a group home. In February of 2016, he legally changed his name to Will Barker. He wanted to leave the group home and live on his own. And then on February 26th, he won that right upon the recommendation of the Criminal Code Review Board, on February 10th of 2017, he was given absolute discharge with no legal obligations or restrictions pertaining to his independent living. Carol Dedele, the mother of the victim, was notified when he sought the discharge. She said, I'm strongly opposed. He may be a little better now, but I believe wellness for him is tentative at best, and I don't think the mental health system is anywhere close to adequate to manage these killers. So far, there have been no setbacks reported. Lee's medical term stresses that he is medicated. Tim McLean's mother went on to say, Will Barker has not acknowledged the cannibalism aspect of the index offense, which makes me question just how much insight into his illness does he really have? He may be a little better now, but Timothy is still very much dead. Lee has been described as a model patient by his doctors, who say he no longer suffers the same issues that he did that day in 2008. Medical experts say he was suffering from command hallucinations leaked to untreated schizophrenia when he attacked Tim McLean. The long legal battle that Tim's family has fought to keep the killer locked up has left them struggling financially. Tim's uncle created a GoFundMe page to help with the expenses. He said the family has been totally consumed by the horrible tragedy. McLean's mother had to find work cleaning houses, which meant she couldn't care for the grandchildren, one of which included Tim's child born five months after his death. It's an incredibly sad story, one of which I'm not sure how I feel, if Vince Lee was suffering from schizophrenia at the time of the attack, I mean, should he be held responsible? I can't say that he should, but do I feel comfortable knowing he's out there walking the streets? Hell no. That's a terrifying thought. My worry is, what if he goes off his medication? I mean, I take medication for anxiety and depression, and I'll tell you what happens. You start feeling okay, and that's because the medicine is working, but you tell yourself that you don't need it anymore. So then your symptoms come back. I mean, for me, it's just anxiety and OCD symptoms. But magnify that, and you have someone like Lee thinking he has to save the world from aliens. So I'm kind of split on how I feel about this case. I definitely think he should be kept under supervision for the rest of his life. I mean, this is just too much of a risk. Schizophrenia can't be cured. But maybe after 20 years or so, if he's kept up with his medication then talk to him about living on his own. I mean, this all seems very rushed to me, and I'm sure very much so to Tim McLean's family. The events on the Greyhound bus in 2008 will forever be cemented in many people's minds, including my own. The image of Vince Lee holding the severed head of Tim McLean will sadly haunt those 34 passengers forever. And it sounds like Greyhound didn't adequately care for these traumatized people. Whatever you do, don't try to look for images of this online. There are some photos floating around there that say they're Tim McLean in the aftermath. And regardless of whether they are or aren't, they're very disturbing. Of course, I looked at them and it's very brutal. The events of that day show, sadly, that you can never let your guard down when traveling with strangers. I worried so much about my boyfriend's mom when she traveled. I mean, look at what happened to Tim McLean. He was a young, athletic guy. And when you're ambushed like that, there's no chance for a fair fight. So that was the case of the Greyhound murder of Tim McLean. First off this week, I want to talk about something very exciting. I officially got a logo for Red Run Blonde, and it is done by Michelle Walrave. Check out his website. It's M-I-C-H-I-E-L-W-A-L-R-A-V-E dot com. And I apologize if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. There's a little bit of debate between me and my boyfriend about how to pronounce it. His stuff is absolutely amazing. My boyfriend was a very big fan of his. Um, He does like skateboards and all kinds of artwork. Um, He first showed me his artwork. It was an illustration he did for a magazine for Stranger Things. And I was absolutely blown away. And so for him to do something for me is just beyond amazing and an absolute miracle. And it is just perfect. So check him out, michellewalrave.com. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. He's absolutely amazing. Go buy some of his stuff. He has t-shirts. He has stickers. So cool. And this is like probably the coolest thing that could happen in connection with this podcast. I also have a recommendation for you this week. The History Channel has a new series called The Hunt for the Zodiac. And so far, I've only watched one episode, but I swear these guys maybe are going to solve it. I went in very skeptical. You know, I watched that show that claimed H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. And that show, no. (laughs) But after the first episode of this one, I was just riveted. So it takes a group of guys who investigate the case from day one. And it's comprised of former FBI cold case detective Ken Mains, LAPD homicide detective Sal La Bar- La Barbera, from the University of California. There's computer science master codebreaker Kevin Knight, as well as a team of brainiacs. And the part with the codebreaker Kevin Knight is really fascinating. So they've taken the supercomputer and they've programmed it to analyze and think like the Zodiac they've input the ciphers as well as other evidence so they can kind of find connections between things that, you know, human minds can't see. So this combined with the intelligence of the two men doing groundwork with a cold case, previously unconnected to the Zodiac really gets it off to an exciting start. And they focus on the cold case of a girl who was ki- killed near a library. And this has very eerie connections to the Zodiac. And so they happen upon a suspect. Is really, really going to be good. And seriously, these guys might solve this case. As you also know, Charles Manson died this week. When I was writing this, he was still on his deathbed. He had been in very poor health for quite a bit of a time. And I think everyone was on a death watch. They kept the details very quiet, but that's due to federal and state privacy laws. He was kept in Bakersfield Hospital. And despite the ill health, security was very tight. The last time he was hospitalized, several prison officials were seen at the hospital. I mean, Charles Manson's a pistol to put it mildly. He'd had many troubles in prison, ranging from a repeated possession of a weapon, possessing a cell phone and threatening staff. He spat in guards faces, started fights, threw hot coffee at a staffer and set his mattress on fire. In 2014, He almost got married, but that fell through. So even though the details of his health are tight-lipped, he ended up dying. I don't think anyone's mourning his death, and I don't know if anyone's even going to claim his body. So even though he was personally not charged with murdering someone, he orchestrated the deaths of many. And if you feel any sympathy for this man, remember Sharon Tate was ready to give birth when she was butchered. Look up his crimes. I mean, the only justice is that he lived a long life and suffered every day in prison. The other crazy thing going on in the news is there is apparently an active serial killer in Tampa, Florida. And so far, he's claimed four victims. And the very frightening part is there's no definitive motive or connection between these victims. Seems like anyone's fair prey. There's a couple surveillance videos that they released... At first, the person in the video was named as a suspect, who might be a witness or have information. And then they bumped him up, definitely, to a suspect. So in every video, it shows a man who looks like he's African-American. He's very thin built, and he's always wearing a hoodie. And the very disturbing thing is he appears to be very calm and not in any kind of a hurry. He walks around slowly, looks at his flip phone. And So I'm going to do some armchair detective work and say he lives in that area. The crimes all occurred in a very close proximity to each other. So I'm sure police are working on that area. If you're in Tampa, please be safe. It's going to be very interesting to see how this pans out. I think with all this focus, hopefully he'll be caught soon. So thanks for tuning in this week. I've been wanting to cover this case from the very beginning. And thank you for all the messages on Twitter. I really love when someone reaches out and tells me they're listening. Now, I'm always trying to improve and make the podcast better. So I'm still working on trying to get a music angle. I had a couple of things fall through. So if you guys know of someone good, maybe suggest them to me. Let me know. Contact me on Instagram or Facebook. Just look for Red Rum Blonde. I'm on Twitter at Blonde redrum. And... As you know, I have that kick-ass logo. That's pretty awesome. Still debating about some cases in Pittsburgh I'd like to cover eventually. And I always think about doing, you know, heavy hitter serial killers. So let me know what you'd want to hear. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next week.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.